This is the Portland Real Estate Podcast, your number one place for anything you need to know about the Portland real estate market, along with in-depth interviews from our local real estate industry experts. Now, without further ado, here are our hosts, Tucker Merrihew from TTM Development Company and Steve Nassar from Premier Property Group. What's up, everybody out there in listener land? This is episode 38 of the Portland Real Estate Podcast. We are back this week in our virtual studios with myself and my co-host, Steve Nassar. He's back from a break last week. We missed you, Steve, but we had a great show. You guys did have a fantastic show. I was really, really bummed out that I, had, I missed that. I did have a presentation for our company that just, obviously, I was the sole presenter. There was no rescheduling it. And Justin, too, is a busy guy, so he needed to have that time slot. Joe Fastolo really stepped up, did such a great job. And it was a pleasant surprise to you and I. We kind of, off the air, talked about how we were going to navigate and maybe get a guest host with Joe on. But little did we know the history he had with Justin and how that was really able to help pull out some great nuggets out of him. And Justin was just so transparent with you know where he's been, where he's going, some of his best practices. It was good, good stuff. Yeah, I agree. I, you know, you never know when you get people on the show what you're going to get out of them. And, you know, I will say Joe did a fantastic job. He was lobbying for your job after the show, but I told him <laughs> no, so. just kidding, Joe. But Justin gave a great interview, very transparent, like you said. You know, you never know where the interviews are going to go. And we talked almost more about life than business in a lot of it, which was kind of cool. I didn't know that we were going to go that deep, but I'm glad that we did. I think it turned out really well. Yeah, it absolutely did. So now that we're back, we've got just the two of us this week. We're going to kind of talk about a few things, market recap, but we're going to tie that into a few uh, headline articles and then kind of go through what's going on with us as well. But why don't you kick it off? It's been a while since we've heard from you. What's been going on with you and your business? Yeah, for the past, gosh, I, mean, I know there was a master's in there. We usually don't talk about ourselves and our business in there. And then I think we had a couple different interviews where we kept the entire segment to the interviews. So it's been about a month, it feels like, since we've kind of dived into what's going on in our world. And there's a ton going on. So I'll talk on the company level. First of all, we are neck deep in opening three brand new branches. They're at different stages in the process. The one that's going to come online the soonest is the one in Newburgh, which I think I've mentioned in the past. I had the opportunity to stop in there over the weekend. It's just such a cool, cool building right off of 99, right by the drive-in theater. It's got a really open, woodsy feeling, open beams, very, very inviting and warm building. Great curb appeal, too. Really cool space. So we're really excited. That one's going to be online, and we're going to have it up and rolling and have a grand opening sometime in June. So we're really close on that one. We've signed the lease on a Gresham space that we're excited about. It's right there by the East Metro Area Real Estate Association. It's in the same building, believe it or not. So that's going to be good because a lot of agents are very familiar with that building and that office. And so we're going to be just above it. So there's going to be some familiarity there as well. And then on Friday of last week, I went for the second time to another one that we're really serious about downtown. And it's in the Lloyd District. And downtown spaces are just such a unique animal. They really are when it comes to parking. You know, there's a lot of businesses that don't get affected by parking like we do. But as realtors who are coming and going and running out to this inspection and that showing and then coming back in, it's really something you have to be mindful of. I mean, even the mortgage industry doesn't get affected, or nor the title industry, as as we've acknowledged the way that we are. So 
we knew that we want to be downtown. We're leaning towards the east side, partly for that reason, because as bad as parking is downtown in general, the east side has a little bit better setup, typically speaking. And so we finally settled on this one. We're pretty close. We haven't signed the lease yet, but it's in the Lloyd District. It's right off I-84. As you're coming off the westbound exit at Lloyd Center, you literally have come to a stop sign, and we're on the ground floor there. We'll have some great visibility, some great signage there. Really nice building, nice lobby, great shared conference rooms. So we're excited about that. Companies How, just a quick question for me. How do you go about like filling those new offices with agents? Do you recruit first or do you have people that kind of transition over and then continue to fill the office? How do you guys do that? We recruit first. Okay. We typically will recruit first. And for example, I mean, the best example is Newberg because that's probably the furthest one out. We were fortunate to have a really good recruit slash hire about six months ago who he was a, an influencer in the McMinnville market. He was a reviewing broker for another operation. He came on board and we were able to start getting some serious traction with some other people coming on board. And yes, I mean, we kind of told him, look, you know, we need about a dozen of you first. And then once we have that, we'll get you the space. And now we've got probably, from what I'm hearing, another 15, 20 people who are saying once the space opens up, we're on board. So we're expecting once we open the Newburgh office up, we'll have right out of the chute, probably 30, 40 people, you know, coming on very quickly. Wow. So it's an interesting question. Do you build it and then they come or do they come and then you build it? And we kind of do the, we do a combination of the two. We know there's going to be some that will not come until you build it, but we sure like the idea of getting some on board, especially some influencers who can really help out in the recruiting process in that new location. And we definitely want to do this. I mean, this is a lot of good practice for our company now here, but we want to do this in Bend. We have an office there, but we really want to grow there. We want to grow in Salem, maybe in Eugene eventually. So yeah, it's a good formula. And that leads me kind of to another thing that we have going on that I was going to chat about with regards to a pilot program we're working with Zillow. As we've talked about here before, I've got some great relationships with Zillow. In my personal business, we're now doing some stuff on the company level where we're turning on some Zillow through a pilot program that allows us to generate just some high quality leads for our lead gen department that will help us grow. We're actually piloting this in Newburgh and possibly Sherwood as well, and really going to start getting some high-quality leads that we're turning over to our people in those markets, which is such a great way to go into a new market by just having a fire hose of good leads that you're able to divvy out, and it's a win-win. The company gets a small referral fee. The agents get a tremendous flow of business. Zillow's introduced us to some really cool concepts with like a jump ball line where basically we set up a phone number so that the lead calls the phone number and it rings five different agents. So the first one answers, gets to talk to the lead. Zillow has a broker concierge service where they actually will, when somebody does a contact form, they'll be the first person to call immediately. And we've been getting a lot of good traction with that. So we've got some good stuff going on there. My personal business has also has a lot of good stuff going on. Just since this last weekend, so in, a, in about the last three, four days, we've put like eight homes in escrow. We have a bunch of listings coming online. I just think the market is, you know, a combination. I think we're doing some stuff right on our front, and the market's just really, it's that time of year where a lot of homes are coming online. I we're, agree. How do you feel in terms of the uh, offers that you got accepted? Do you feel like it was a, an extreme battle, or do you feel like, you know, you won the battle a little easier than maybe you thought on some of those? You're talking on the buy side? Yeah, on the buy side. It's battles. It's okay. battles. I can't 
definitively say that we've had too many where there was no other offers? You know, that's one of my first questions. When one of my buyer's agents says, hey, guess what? So-and-so is writing an offer. My first question, are there other offers? Mm. Because that tells you everything right there. If there's no other offers, we've got a deal. We're going to figure this out 99% of the time. Right. If there's other offers, then, you know, that's off the table. And not to say you can't get in, not to say we don't employ some techniques that I think give us some advantages a compilation of techniques all added together that I think give us some advantages. But those advantages definitely don't take us to 99%. They might yeah. take us to, if if we're fortunate, to 50%. So yeah, on the listing side, you know, it's been similar. Several of the lower priced homes have had, you know, just gobs of offers. I think we had one over the weekend where there was only one offer on it, but it was a $500,000 house. I mean, you know, across the board, it's the lower the price point, the more offers. That's true. Yeah, we're... um. Yeah, well, I guess before I go into my own stories, did I didn't want to cut you off. Is there anything else notable that uh, you, you know? The last to? thing I was going to say is I'm in the final stages. I'm, it's a pretty exciting project. I've talked about it a few times before on the show. I'm working on it with one of my other agents in our company. He's on the executive team as the business development VP, Steve Alves. He's got a lot of new construction experience, and so I pulled him in. I, at one time, I floated this past you, but it was a little out of your wheelhouse with regards to location. It's pretty deep Hillsborough, and we kind of had a fortunate break. We have a two-acre parcel there that's listed, but we also, in this process, a neighbor, next-door neighbor with another two acres kind of you know, basically started in communication with us saying, you know what, if they're going to sell that and build there, then I, I probably want to get out of Dodge too. So it's quickly become, you know, almost a four acre project. We're in high level talks. We've actually got two offers on the table from a uh, West Side builder that I've met with multiple times. Good people. I think, I think it's a good fit. And so, yeah, I mean, that's looking really, really promising and there's a lot of potential there. So we're pretty excited about that. Yeah, that's a big project too. I mean, I don't know how many houses could go in there, but I'm guessing at least 10, right? It's 25-ish. Okay. Probably. All right. So I was yeah. way off. <laughs> yeah. It's it's high density. It's yeah. high density. Yeah. Okay. Cool. Yeah. yeah that's, I mean, that's, those are tough to find, you know, those are those size of projects, which keep guys busy and keep, you know, builders busy for long periods of time at one location. Those are tough to find. So I'm sure it wasn't too difficult to find somebody that was interested. That's for sure. Yeah, it's an exciting paycheck in two years. <laughs> <laughs> hey, you plant seeds today for what you reap uh, in two years, right? So <laughs> sometimes it goes that long. Cool. Well, it sounds like things are moving along and, you know, on both on the company and personal side for you. Absolutely. Yeah. Good stuff. Cool. On my end, God, we're busy, busy, busy with stuff. But I will say that I've noticed, you know, I didn't know how the market was going to go as we head into summer here. And we, we'll talk about it a little more. But I'm just going to kind of talk about it in terms of where my perspective is out in the trenches and, and kind of offering inventory to be purchased. I've noticed in the last couple of weeks, kind of a renewed strength in buyers coming into the marketplace. Maybe it's probably because it's the front end of summer. That usually happens. But more specifically in kind of the higher end price points, because that's where we operate most of the time. As we talk right now, we've got talk of an offer coming in on, on one of our multi-million dollar projects that is probably three months away from completion still. And so, you know, that's a good sign of the market, you know, especially when you get in those high dollar projects. A lot of people like to see the finished project if they're not picking stuff out because they're spending multiple millions of dollars on it, right? So when the market's strong enough to yield an offer prior to a, a project of that size and, and that dollar figure being finished, it's usually a really good sign. We also just finished our project over on Lake Grove Avenue. We pulled it off the market before finishing because it just, it's like Grand Central Station over there in the last week or two trying to get the last 5% punched out. 
And we had an offer ahead of time, but I just didn't like it. It wasn't good enough. I didn't feel. So we're going to put that back on the market, but we've actually got a number of interested parties that want to see the finished product before we put it on the market. So we'll probably be pending with that you know, within a day or two of putting it back on the market now that it's finished. So I'm feeling that the market is pretty strong. You know, and it's kind of, you know, we talked about it kind of ebbs and flows, right? It goes back a little bit and then it comes back strong. And I, this is kind of the normal cycle. It's the normal time. We're going into the beginning of summer now, you know, last month of school. This is usually when a lot of buyers come back in. I have noticed that most of the people that are coming in and looking at our higher dollar stuff, they're California transplants. So those nasty California buyers are, are coming up in droves, it, it looks like, at least into the Lake Oswego market anyway. So. Yeah, we're definitely going to talk about that when we shift over into some of the market recap and some articles we've got. I mean, that's a blessing and a curse. I mean, it, for you and I, I'd say it's a categorically a blessing because we benefit and our livelihoods benefit when they move here. But clearly, there's a backlash of people that don't feel like they're benefiting from that and it's affecting their quality of life. That is true. Although I just got a new set of neighbors across the street from me and they're from California and they're very nice. So, you know, exactly. You know, exactly. They're all people. There are assholes that live here that are from here and there's assholes that live in California that are from California. Oh, gosh. So, yeah, absolutely. Know, it's all about the people. It's not about where they're from, in my opinion. But on another note, I wanted to bring up something that we actually experienced a couple of days ago out in the field because we look at a lot of property. As you know, we've sniffed around a, a number of projects that you've got coming online as well or have had online like we talked about in the past and moving forward too. But we look at property all the time trying to figure out, okay, is this going to be a good project for us? Where can we fit it into our pipeline? When can we build it out? Uh, you know, all those things. And so this past week, we looked at a property in Southwest Portland and we weren't the only builder looking at it. We actually were uh, the second builder in line looking at it. There was another one in front of us. There was a deal on the table from the builder that looked at the property before us, but it fell apart. And the reason why it fell apart is because the homeowner or the property owner, he didn't realize the magnitude of what the um, Nimrods down at the city of Portland had done to him and his property value. And so we had to kind of go through the education process. And now he understands and now he's flaming pissed at the city of Portland for what they tried to accomplish by basically trying to entice builders to not cut down trees. And so I want to go through real quick what has happened. There's a, an email here that I actually got from the city of Portland talking about the tree code that went into effect on May 13 of this year. And so basically what it is, is anything that's inside the city of Portland, I, it might even extend all the way to Multnomah County, but I think it's just in, inside the city of Portland. It means that any lot that has a tree that is bigger than 36 inches in diameter, doesn't matter where it is, it could be smack dab in the middle of the lot. And just for reference sake, the, the property that I looked at this week, it was two lots. One had a house on it on the, the lot to the right and the lot to the left, which was a vacant lot, had two giant trees right smack dab in the middle of the lot. So if anybody was ever going to develop that lot, the footprint of the new house is going to sit right where those trees are. So there's really no way to save it unless you build a hole in the middle of your house that these <laughs> trees go through, right? Which I'm sure some Portlandians would love that. But us as builders think that that's a terrible idea. So here's what happens. This guy's got a lot. He thinks that it's worth X based on comparables and what builders are paying for other lots, which in a perfect world it is. Well, now he's got these two giant trees that are both of, you know, 36 inches in diameter or bigger, which means that regardless of where they're at on the lot, and if they get cut down, it's $10,800 per tree plus $300 per additional caliper inch. And these trees were probably 40 to 45. So they're somewhere in the 11 to $13,000 a tree range, which basically equated to, let's call it $25,000 in additional cost just to the city of Portland, plus the cost of cutting the trees down. 
and all the uh, probably picketing and angry people that you get to deal with on top of that. So the other builder said that, hey, we have to adjust our offer downward because of these costs. And he didn't like that. He thought that they were just blowing smoke up as you know what. And so we went and looked at it. I actually brought him all of the jargon from the city explaining it. And it set in almost immediately with him, which is why I cannot figure out for the life of me why city council, there wasn't one person on there that thought that maybe this is the way it's going to work out. But basically, when you impose stuff like this, the whole idea was is that the city wanted to get builders to save trees. Well, it doesn't work like that. The way it works, especially when you have trees, and on, especially on smaller lots, right? Most of the lots affected by this, Steve, are 5,000 to 7,000 square foot lots. They're within the city of Portland, right? Kind of higher density, smaller lots. It's hard to build any sort of a new house with giant trees on a five to 7,000 square foot lot unless they're just ideally placed, which is rarely ever the case. You've got you know utilities, you've got foundation, it can't be within the drip line. And as these trees get bigger, that drip lines for the trees become very, very big. And so it's hard not to have a foundation that upsets the drip line. And if it does, the trees compromise, next windstorm comes along, even if the trees left, falls on the house, hurts somebody, kills somebody, us as the builder gets sued because the city of Portland wouldn't let us cut it down, right? So you understand the, the, what's at play here. Well, basically for this guy, you know, it basically meant $25,000 less that his lot is worth, plus the additional headache of having to deal with it all, whatever you quantify that as, uh, depending on the builder. And so, you know, he was very upset about that. It's unfortunate the city council didn't realize that by imposing this, all they're doing is taking money out of the pockets of their own residents. They're not taking money out of the profit margins of the builders because the builders already build a product that they get the max they can for, right? We don't sell for less than max dollars. That's why we build new construction. So the market on that end is already giving you the most money it'll give you for a product. On the other end, they're not going to slim their margins. They're just going to adjust their buy price. So what happens if they adjust their buy price? Well, anybody that has any sort of economics common sense can see that it comes out of the owner's pocket. And so this individual was basically going to have $25,000 less in his retirement account because this money was going to help him through retirement. And so that's what this is doing. And so it's really unfortunate. On top of that, it's also going to stifle a lot of uh, additional new construction that might happen in those kind of questionable value areas where we're already having a, a tough time get making it happen because of what building permit costs are, like we talked about with Randy a few shows back. If you throw a ten dollars to $20,000 additional cost on there for trees that have to be cut down, guess what? property never gets developed. Our inventory never continues to grow where it could. It's got all kinds of terrible impacts. It's just, it makes me sick that the city council did this thinking that it was going to do one thing when it really had no shot at ever doing that. So anyway, that's my rant. I was out in the, in the field this week, actually looked at a property where it directly applied to. And, you know, I thought I'd bring it up and talk about it on the show. Yeah. And we've talked in the past about how in general, builders margins aren't as great as they used to be largely because of the cost of their subcontractors. They're in such high demand that the subcontractors are just dictating their price. Hey, I'm busy. I've got five builders. I want me to frame this house. Here's my price. And so it's not just about the builders not wanting to slim their margins. I mean, those margins have been squeezed. And so the natural progression of that is it's going to be the buy price, as you said. Yeah. So it's, it's unfortunate that that got ramrodded through so quickly, but it did. And so it got voted into effect. And as of May 13th this year, if you have a tree on your lot in the city of Portland, that's bigger than 36 inches in diameter, it's going to cost uh, whoever cuts it down at least $10,800 and probably quite a bit more depending on how much bigger. So something to think about folks, something to think about, but beyond that, uh, things are going good. So 
I don't want to spend too much more time on myself because we got a lot of other ground to cover, but why don't we segue into one of the articles that you wanted to talk about, and then we can kind of tie in what's going on with the market since that's pretty much the headline of the article. Yeah, so we didn't do our normal market recap this month, and we're, we're a couple weeks since it came out, but there was some great stuff here. I definitely wanted to touch on that. On sure. the market action report, the number of listings coming on was a lot lower. Closed sales and pending sales actually dropped. I mean, there's an Oregonian article here that came out in the last week or so that actually RMLS, as as most of our listeners who are realtors know, RMLS sends out a, a weekly email broadcast every Monday morning, and they usually attach articles to it. Well, the two articles we're going to discuss this week were attached to Monday's RMLS feed. And what it's addressing is that closed sales and pending sales are down year over year. Now, for the past seven, eight months plus, every month was not only sometimes the best month on record, but if not that, it was the best month since the downturn. So since like maybe 06 or 07. This is the first month in a while where closed sales aren't even what they were last year and pending sales aren't even what they were last year. To give you some numbers, I mean, closed sales ended 4.5% down from April of 2015. And pending sales were down 5% lower than last year. So both were about 5%, 4.5%, down from last year. So this article that came out was really talking about, you know, there was some quotes from some agents. One said, and I don't necessarily agree with this quote. I'll read it word for word. It says here, this agent said, people are just gobbling up stuff so quickly that homes are flying off the market. Well, I agree with you. <laughs> yes. <laughs> However, that wouldn't cause your numbers in of itself to go down. I think the greater issue here that I'm seeing firsthand is sellers, unless they're selling to move out of the area or, or to rent, are grossly concerned with where they're going. I had an experience with this in the past week where I've been working with this couple for, gosh, three weeks now, and they're doing that little conundrum, you know, two-step of, Okay, we don't want to put our house on the market till we find the right house. Oh, hey, there's the right house. Let's put our house on the market. Oh, the right house is gone. Somebody took it. Let's not put our house on the market until we find the right house. Oh, hey, there's the right house. Oh, it's gone. I mean, and you work with these people. You get their pain, but you, you got to be creative in providing the solutions. But, you know, typically they go through that process for a while and, and you talk to them about some solutions. You talk to them about, you know, a long closing or a rent back for 60 days or 30 days, you talk to them about, okay, maybe if you have a really specific search and there isn't a lot of right houses for you, maybe we need to explore a double move. But ultimately, you're going to get nowhere if you just keep doing that same process over and over. I think that is what is causing these numbers to happen. I think the low inventory and the lower sales and the lower pendings isn't because they're being gobbled up, that would cause them to go up. It's because not as many houses as are needed are coming on the market. And I think it's largely for those reasons. Yeah, I think it, you're right. I mean, it's a catch 22, right? I mean, people want to sell to either upgrade their housing, capitalize on the, you know, the good market. But on the flip side, they have to find a place that is suitable enough to make it worth going through everything to get there. And so, you know, you got to have a, a house on one end if you're going to be selling one on the other. And I think it's that's kind of the handcuffs that are kind of on the market right now, in my opinion. It's it's going to be a slow process to get enough inventory back on the market of people that are going to go through that process to kind of start to normalize our levels. 
Yeah, and I think it's a challenge to the agents out there. You know, as in most things in life, every challenge provides an opportunity, right? If you can crack that nut, and I'm not saying there's a perfect solution. There actually is not, or this problem wouldn't exist. But if you can have the dialogue and the scripts and the confidence and the stories of past clients who are in the exact same position, and here's how we did it, and everything turned out okay for them, I think that is what this market needs to get more inventory out there so that we can see those pending and closed sales go up. You know, another um, interesting point, and I only bring this up because I saw it in my in my office here over the course of the last couple of weeks. You know, there was a listing that the agent in my office here has. It's not one of our properties, but it's another listing. And they got an offer on the property, but it was from buyers that obviously had to sell their home, like you're kind of talking about, right? So they went fishing first to try and find a new place to live before they put their house on the market to sell it. And sellers would have probably accepted that offer, except they hadn't put their home on the market yet. And they were going to put it on the market for a ridiculously high price. They were, you know, drinking the Kool-Aid as far as the market being so bananas that people are just going to pay a stupid price for anything. And so then you've got that at play too, right? Agents have to kind of set the expectation for people that are realistic in terms of not only finding something on the other end, but also what should your home really sell for? And so I, I saw that firsthand and it you know, I think that that's probably a play a lot because like you talked about, you know, everybody sees the Joneses sold their house down the street for this and everybody thinks their house is better than the Joneses house for some reason. And so their house must be priced this much more, or that much more because of it. And so you've got to deal with that as well. Yeah. And back to the market action report, I was going to point out a couple of things. The average sales price in Portland is now 365100 ending the month of April 30th. And, and that's up 8.7% from 2015. The median price is 318500 I, I did a little bit of fun research on this, Tucker. We all get asked, what's the average sales price in Portland by our sellers or buyers for that matter? Mm -hmm. And I bet a lot of our agents, as I have, have grappled with, well, is it 365 or is it 318? What's the difference? And so what I did was I did a little bit of research on this just to kind of second guess myself on how this actually works. But really how it works is this. The average is really, this will take you back to math and high school or, or middle school even for that matter. The <laughs> average, there's a couple ways to configure averages. The most common one that we are most familiar with is called mean, M-E-A-N. And that's where you add up all the houses and then divide by the number of houses that you added up. And that is the 365,100. The median, which is the other one, is where you take all the houses and you put them in a row and then you take the one right smack dab in the middle. The reason the median is always lower is because there's a lot more lower end homes than there is the higher end homes. In fact, I took this right off of Wikipedia, it says the basic advantage of the median over the mean in describing data is that it is resilient to extremely large or smaller values and may be a better description of a typical outcome. So to further give an example of that, if you had three houses, say the three houses are 300,000, 700,000, and 2 million. So you got three houses. Obviously, if you had 300,000, 700,000, you got a million, then you got your 2 million house. So now you've got $3 million. Divide by three, which is your mean, you get a million dollar is your mean. Take the three and take the one in the middle, that's a $700,000 house. Obviously, that's a lot lower. And that's always going to be the case. The median is always going to be a lot lower. So it's something that comes up with sellers all the time. And it's a good thing to kind of wrap your head around when they ask you, well, what really is the average and why is there two different figures here in the stats? Hey, that's our Snapple fun fact for the day. I like that. That was, that was a good description. I now have a better way to answer that question myself. So that's, that's good. 
So beyond that, there was another article, I think, as well, that you wanted to make mention to that basically, was it the one that can Portland avoid repeating San Francisco's mistakes? Is that it? That is the one. That is the one. So this is really a tale of two stories, okay? And there's going to be different perspectives, and I don't think any one perspective is right. I just, I think a person's perspective is largely, as in most things in life, is going to largely be based on how it affects them. Yeah, their vantage point. What this is basically saying is as more and more people are moving into Portland, and and you said it, the Californians, and and the tech industry in Portland is just taking off. We've talked about a lot on the show. I mean, a lot of the tech companies from Seattle and San Francisco especially. By the way, in this article, it said the average home price in San Francisco is $1.12 million. Wow. I mean, it's gone up a lot here, but we're at 350. So you can see where these companies that are moving here, like Google, eBay, Airbnb, and Amazon, you can see where if you don't want to have to pay all your people gobs and gobs of money, you might want to move them to a place where they can make a little bit less and have a really high quality of life. And that's what they're doing by relocating a lot of their operations to Portland, which, by the way, is a great place. We have a thriving tech industry. We have a lot of talent. We have a lot of creatives here. So it's clearly a good model. It's working. But as those people come here, it's driving up everything for the people who who were here before. I mean, this article talked about how apartment rents have risen 14% over a year. There's even been entire buildings where the rent was raised 20% or $500. I mean, those are substantial numbers. And there's a lot of these people that are moving out of these inner Portland locations because people with higher salaries are coming in and they can pay more. It talked a little bit about how Portland just hasn't had the tools such as rent control in place. They've tried to respond. You and I have talked about it. I mean, now there's 90-day notice needing to be given. There's 90-day notice for a rent increase of more than 5%. It talked a little bit about how minorities have been pushed out. It mentioned how, you know, back in the in the 60s and 70s, there was an area of Portland I'm not super familiar with, but it's Albina. You ever heard of it? Oh, yeah. 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 I guess it's where it's a little bit north of the Rose Garden is what I understand. It's where Emanuel Hospital is. Yeah. It, but it's changed a lot through gentrification over the last, you know, probably 10 years. Yeah. And it talked about how in the 60s and 70s, there was a lot of minorities there, but then they put in I-5 there. They brought in a manual hospital. Prices started to go up. So they moved to more north and northeast Portland. Well, guess what's happening in north and northeast Portland now? Yep. It's booming. In fact, if you look at the market action report, it's the only part of the city that was up 15% year over year in appreciation. So they're now the same thing is happening there. They are ending up, this article is saying they're moving out to the edges of town, to the suburbs, to, they call it the high number streets. Out in the numbers. <laughs> out in the numbers, <laughs> they called it, yeah. So it's clearly having an impact on people. Now, it's unfortunate for those people. I get it. But at the same time, I mean, it's the success of Portland. It's Portland growing up. It's it's attracting new people. You know, I was thinking about it. I was like, If you took a poll, if you went, Tucker, down on any Main Street in our area, and you said, hey, would you ever want Portland to have an NFL team? Do you think you'd get many no's? Probably not. Probably not. No, I think everyone would be like, yeah, that'd be great. Well, for Portland to grow up, you have to have more people. And so there's blessings to growing up. There's blessings to having a higher population and nicer restaurants and infrastructure and being a bigger city. But you know, there's also going to be some casualties in the process. As people are moving here, 
and clearly those people have more money, it's going to cause some problems. And yeah, and you know, the reality is this, right? There's always cheaper places to live in any city, but to expect in any major metro that you can find cheap housing in smack dab the middle of the city, it's just, it's not a realistic expectation, especially now given where Portland has grown to. And so for people to hold on to that and harbor resentment and hatred because of that, they got to let it go because Portland has changed a lot and it's going to continue to change. And, you know, harboring all of that hatred and animosity because of it just does nobody any good. Yeah. And I don't get like you don't hear this about like Lake Oswego as much. I mean, you know what I mean? I mean, Lake Oswego is a high price point. You don't hear grumbling like, hey, I grew up in Lake Oswego in the 70s and I can't afford anymore and I need to move to Tigard and by golly, we should have put in some cheap houses and, and some rent control and figured this out. Yet you hear it in Portland a lot. And yeah, it's true. You know, but Lake Oswego has changed a lot as well. I mean, I was just having a conversation over at uh, our mutual friend's house, Big Smooth, with a, an appraiser who grew up in my neck of the woods where I live in Lake Oswego right now, which is kind of the Lake Grove area. That used to be like the slums of Lake Oswego, right? Now it's, it's trendy. It's hopping. It's cleaned up. I think it's the most convenient part of Lake Oswego, honestly, and I think it's going to be one of the more desirable moving forward. But, you know, it's changed a lot as well. But like you said, there's not as many people that are fighting against it. And that's one of the reasons why we do a lot of projects there, because, you know, quite honestly, the project we just finished on Lake Grove Avenue, every neighbor came out and told us how great it looks and they're so happy that it's done. We do that in Portland. We maybe get one neighbor that comes and says that. And then we get probably two or three that tell us that we're the Antichrist because <laughs> we use, you know, hardy uh, siding, something which we actually got a call like that last week, believe it or not. So, you know, I think that people there, for whatever reason, they understand the greater good concept and they understand that, you know, by us and other builders and areas improving and us putting in this new housing, it betters everything there. And I think that they're just more apt to accept that. That's the only thing I can come up with. I would go so far as to say, and there's almost, it feels like there's almost a tiny sense of entitlement in Portland where it's like, hey, we've always lived here. We tiny, we, we tiny sh- sense. <laughs> I'm, I'm know, being, I'm being recorded. So I'm being careful. Um, <laughs> there's a sense of we've always lived here. So as here where we live improves and becomes more expensive, if we can't keep up by golly, they need to figure that out for us versus okay, you know, it was a good run. Let's go to where we can live. Again, that happens in Lake Oswego. I mean, I know people our age who they grew up in, like you said, in certain parts of Lake Oswego that now have turned over and are, they can't afford that. They moved to Tiger. They moved to Tiger. They moved to Tualatin and they don't complain about it and go, gosh, Lake Oswego should have jumped in and made sure that I could stay there. So I don't know. It's just there is a difference there. But at the same time, I'm not saying that I don't get the concerns of some of those people. You know, there was a story here about a family that, you know, was looking for they've got kids in school and they're being evicted from their house for some reason due to a management changeover. And they're looking in the same school system and they're not finding anything. It's painful. It's painful. But but it's the growing pains. It's part of, you know, growing up. It is. And I sympathize, but I went to five different schools in five different years. So guess what? The kids will be okay. They'll be all right. You know, (laughs) they'll survive. That's kind of the way I look at it. But yeah, good article for sure. I think that the overall theme is that Portland is continuing to grow up. And we've talked about that a lot. And, you know, people just have to get their head around that and they have to understand what comes with it. Exactly. Exactly. And someday maybe we'll have an NFL team and that'll be the trade off. Yeah. But until then, we've got the Blazers and we've got the Timbers. So depending (laughs) on what you're into. So. Cool. Well, I think we covered a lot of good ground. 
I don't think that I want to dive into. Uh, I've got another article. Maybe I'll save it till next week to talk about because I think we covered a lot of good stuff, and I don't want to deviate too far from from what the overall theme of this episode was, which was kind of a market recap and and kind of the uh, the market forces at play. So, I guess before we get out of here, any any parting words of wisdom or anything uh, to our listeners that uh, you wish to say, Steve? Nope, I'm out of breath. We're done. <laughs> okay, it's a wrap, folks. It's episode thirty-eight. We'll see you next week. Thanks again for listening to our show, and make sure to tune in next week for another great episode of the Portland Real Estate Podcast.